Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Up next is something a bit out of the ordinary, with an enticing mix of East and West, ancient yesterday and unpredictable tomorrow, and with a dash of moderate Islam. Come with us in the hour ahead as we visit two misunderstood yet welcoming parts of the fascinating Middle East. Istanbul-based tour guide Lali Sermon Aran gives us an updated insider's view of her homeland, Turkey. It offers evocative remnants of the earliest civilizations and a fascinating chance to walk in the footsteps of St. Paul. Then, we venture deep into Arabia with travel writer David Stanley, who's recently returned from a visit to four states in the Persian Gulf region. Well, you know, the Arab culture is, is very proud of its tradition of hospitality. These small but increasingly ultra-modern countries are coming of age as important global trade centers and tourist attractions as well. We'll find out why in the hour ahead as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Many Americans are nervous about travel to the Middle East these days, and I have to admit, it's often for good reason. But it's a vast region with plenty of diversity, including some western-looking corners that are safer and more welcoming than you might think. Coming up a little later in this hour, we're talking with travel writer David Stanley, who's just back from the Persian Gulf region. He's all excited about the surprisingly modern and moderate nations of Bahrain, Oman, Qatar, and Dubai, which have enjoyed a huge economic expansion and a tourist boom in recent years. But for most of us, Turkey is still our preferred gateway to the Muslim world. As a secular, non-Arabic nation, it's a bridge between East and West, and Turkey continues to provide a warm welcome and rewarding experience to American visitors. An updated insider's guide to Turkey with my Istanbul-based tour guide friend and co-author of my upcoming guidebook to Istanbul, Lali Sermon Aran. That's where we start on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And I have with me today in the studio, Lali Sermon Aran, who is a tour guide from Istanbul. Lali, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, Rick. And I want to say hello to America in Turkish. Merhaba, Amerika. Merhaba. I love that. What does that mean, actually? Merhaba. Hello. 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 Merhaba. When you're traveling through Turkey, to me, uh, Istanbul is sort of the, the gateway to Turkey. And probably most people that go to Turkey just go to Istanbul. What would you recommend for an American planning a trip to Turkey as far as balancing between Istanbul and the um, wonders of the countryside? It basically depends how much time in total they have, but definitely Istanbul is the crucial part of Turkey that everybody has to visit. And uh, if people have a limited, a very limited time, they can see Istanbul, maybe a few days in Cappadocia, and Ephesus. These would be the three bigs of the western part of Turkey, I can say. So, Lolly, when you say Ephesus, we're talking Greek, Roman, early Christian history on the west coast of Turkey. Yes, exactly. And a lot of people don't, they think of modern political Turkey, but of course in ancient times that was, in Greek times, Iona, part of the Greek? Ionia. Ionia? Yes. In Roman times? It was Ephesus, capital of Provincia Asia, as the Romans called, capital of the Asian provinces. And in early biblical times, it's the footsteps of Paul, right? Yes. A lot of people go to Turkey today to follow the footsteps of Paul. Exactly, and Ephesus is one important place to go. And it's also the place where many Christians, as well as Muslims, believe that Mother Mary lived the last years of her life. My favorite ancient ruins, in a lot of ways, by the way, is the city of Ephesus. And it's just a a very easy side trip from the famous Greek island of Samos. Samos. You go to Samos and you take the little boat over to uh, Kusadashi. Very easy. Mm -hmm. And at 10 miles from there, you're in Ephesus, the home of the Ephesians. And just outside of this incredible ruins, you've got Mary's house. Yes. And, do you uh, believe that's Mary's house? I do. Tell I me do. why. Um, it's in the Muslim tradition, it says in the Quran, in the Holy Book of the Muslims, that Mother Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ, and she and Jesus Christ holds a very, hold a very important position in, in the Muslim faith. And when you go to Mother Mary's house, it's a small chapel, has got two rooms side by side. In the smaller room, uh, you will see prayer beads of the Muslims, prayer rugs. So it's not a place of touristic visit for Muslims. They actually go there to pray and ask help from Mother Mary. What? indication is there that Mary actually moved to Ephesus? There is not actually a historical proof of it. But um, let me start with a little legend. Um, 
people thought that Mother Mary lived somewhere in Ephesus for a very long time, and several expeditions were done to find out where she lived. And definitely nobody came up with anything solid. And then, if I'm not mistaken, in the 19th century, a German nun, Catherine Emmerich is her name, she had visions of Mother Mary, and in her visions, Mother Mary told her where she lived. And this nun told whoever authorities are in charge that she's been seeing Mother Mary in her visions and Mother Mary is telling her where she lived. This person, this nun, had never been to Anatolia, never been to Asia Minor, never stepped foot on Ephesus or anywhere near. But anyway, she described where Mother Mary lived. And actually, she didn't describe, she just narrated what Mother Mary told to her. So with this information, scholars, researchers came and found a house on the mountains, highly forested, nearby Ephesus. A tiny little house, and they made scientific um, researches in this house. It's definitely from the first century A.D. Wow. And moreover, what they found was that this house was rebuilt over the Byzantine times, in the 4th and in the 7th centuries, that it was used as a chapel during the Byzantine times. So, somehow, the Byzantines thought that it was an important religious place and made a chapel in the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain, highly forested. It's not easy to walk through the forest to that, to that house. So, the knowledge after the Byzantines, the knowledge was forgotten. And the house went ruined and just, just forgotten. So the scientific research made there proved that the house is from the uh, first century. It's been built over in the fourth and in the seventh. And I, I think there's some indication just in biblical scholarship that after the crucifixion, Jesus' followers took care of his mother and some of Saint them were in Ephesus. St. John. Saint John. There you go. And it's believed that St. John died in Ephesus. There's, there, there's a big cathedral in his name there. So this is one tiny slice of, of, of Turkey. And as a sightseer, you can... So we're talking about how to best cover Turkey. Of course, you've got to see Istanbul. And then Lali is proposing going to the West Coast, specifically Ephesus, and then going to the center at Cappadocia, which is your classic... Um, exotic uh, cave dwellings and, and uh, you know, medieval kind of Turkish lifestyle. I would add to that Ankara, the capital city, because then you get a sense of modern Turkey and the, the respect that people have for Ataturk, the George Washington of your country. Uh, I agree, and especially I agree because Ankara is the city I was raised. That's where I had all of my schooling. I moved to Istanbul after I got married. Now, Ankara so, is the modern capital of Turkey, yes. but 100 years ago it was a rather small town, wasn't it? Uh, it became the capital. Actually, it became the center of resistance during the World War I in 1920. Mm. And after the World War I ended... And the, and, and, and the Turkish Independence War ended, which happened in 1922. The Turkish Republic was established in 1923. And it was decided that since Ankara was the center of the resistance against occupation, it would be the best to keep it as the capital. That was for one reason it was kept as the capital. And there are other reasons. But meanwhile, in 1920s, population of the city was about 10,000 people. Now it's a huge modern city. Wow. So it does have a sort of part, place in the heart of modern Turks because this was from where the revolution emanated that created the independent modern country of Turkey instead of being on the buffet line of European colonialism. Exactly. exactly. I'm talking with Lali Sermon Aran. Lali is a tour guide who's worked with me for years. She's from Istanbul. And Lali, you, you're sitting across the table from me and you look like a modern Western woman. You just look beautiful. You've got a little bit of uh, Turkic ethnicity in your sweater, I think, and in your jewelry, but there's nothing um, old school about you. Now, I think a lot of Americans have a different impression of Turkey. We see in the news dusty people fighting it out on the east border with Kurds and this kind of thing. And But really, Turkey has a, a very modern side that surprises a lot of tourists when they come to Istanbul and so on. You take Americans around Turkey. What are the misperceptions that, that people have when they come to Turkey, and what are the big surprises? Turkey, unfortunately, is little known in the Western world. When I say Western world, this includes the countries very near to Turkey, such as in Central Europe and Western Europe as well, not only America. And uh, people usually get surprised to knowing me in person. It, I'm surprising them because of the way I dress, because of my education, because of the, of the way I behave. But... Uh, when I started guiding years ago, when I was 18 and 19, I was almost a child then, it was surprising to me that the way I was surprising the Americans. Because you weren't wearing because, a fez and, and on a donkey. I never knew a different lifestyle in my life. Right. You're a big city Turkish girl. Yes. Modern. Yes. Um, but, but, but it was so normal to me. I was surprised when they were surprised at me. And I said, what's wrong? What, why are they getting surprised? And you're Western-oriented, but you are um, committed to being Turkish and being Muslim. 
Yes, of course. So this is potentially the future European Turk, if you join the EU. Yes, it is. And it's, it sh- you don't think it should be frightening to the French or the Germans? In fact, it should be empowering Europe. It should be empowering Europe to a greater union, to a greater power getting together. And uh, Turkey is a strong country. Turkish people, especially my generation, are very dedicated to keeping the individual rights. Yes, there is the religion, and most Turkish people are Muslims, but religion is a person's individual decision. In your constitution, what is the uh, issue between church or mosque and state? Is Secular, there? separated. So there's safeguards for the secular government. Yes. What happens if the government is overtaken in a democratic way by um, Muslims that want to make it a theocracy? It never happened, or we never came closer to anything that that might put, mm-hmm. uh, bring this together. But uh, if it happens in a democratic way, I believe in democracy as well. Okay, so it is a modern democracy. We have Lolly, who has been taking Americans around Turkey since she was 18 years old, and I won't tell you how old she is now, but that's been a few years, and we've got callers on the line, so you can take some more Americans around Turkey via the telephone in this public radio show. Jen in Walnut Creek, California, thanks for calling. Yes, yes, the last time I was in Turkey was in 1973 when I was in college. Um, I'd like to ask your guest there if she would recommend that I go back self-guided, or is it necessary to take a tour? And I really enjoy traveling your style, Rick, through your books and what you would recommend per day as far as cost goes. Good questions. Thank you, Jen. So, Lolly, if somebody is an independent-minded traveler, can they do Turkey on their own without a tour, or do you think it's most appropriate to hire a guide? I think whether men or women can easily travel through Turkey easily without any hesitation. It's a safe country. Turkish people are hospitable, welcoming to the visitors. And being a woman myself, and a woman who's been guiding since the age of 18, I've never had a problem because of my sex traveling through Turkey. Yeah, it's the truth that I'm a local, but I'm also a female, and I started traveling at a very young age, not only for Turkey, at a very young age all around the world. So American women should not be concerned. You have this image of uh, a scary kind of Muslim, male-dominated society, and women wrapped up in their you know, robes and so on. But yes. for a modern American woman tourist in Turkey, your experience is? are quite positive. Very comfortable. Yes, they can comfortably travel. And Jan was asking about uh, what the cost would be. How does the cost of traveling in Turkey relate to traveling in France or Germany? Or oh, it's much less expensive. Even today? Even today. Even though, t- well, compared to 1973, definitely Turkey is more expensive at the moment. Right. But uh, compared to Europe, it's still very reasonable to travel. I found that Turkey over-invested in built-in hotels, and now there's a glut of comfortable hotels that have to be on the discounted price list. Depends on when you travel. There are some um, very popular times, the high season. In those times, you're likely, most likely to pay the full rate. When is the high season on the coast? Um, on the coastline, like the western coastline, I would say the three months of summer, June, July, and August. So that's when you pay top rate for the hotels? Yeah, mostly. More with Lali Sermon Aran and your calls as we explore Turkey on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK. That's our number. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Christoph Dressler. I'm from Germany. And that was German for I travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. We're getting an updated insider's guide to Turkey with Lali Sermon Iran, an Istanbul-based tour guide and the co-author of my upcoming Istanbul guidebook. It's right here on Travel with Rick Steves, 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. We have Anthony on the line in Redmond, Oregon. Anthony, thanks for your call. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. My wife and I are, have been curious about Turkey for many years and are planning a trip there. And we've got some conflicting information about when is the best time to travel in Turkey uh, for the weather. And uh, we've been told that June is the best time, and we've been told that October is the best time, and then we get conflicting information about how much rain we're going to find. I think October is a good month to travel, but I cannot give you a statement about the weather in Turkey because Turkey is a big country. It's similar. It's slightly bigger than Texas, so different regions of Turkey have different patterns and different seasons. But uh, considering Istanbul, I can say that the temperature, the weather, is quite similar to what it is in Seattle. The only difference is we don't have as many overcast days. And uh, it rains almost as much as in Istanbul, but it rains all of a sudden in one day, and the next day it clears out. And there's the sunny sky for a long time. See, in, then Se- it ra- in Seattle, we're really good at spreading out our rain. <laughs> we don't get a lot of inches. It's more balanced we, here. <laughs> we, get, we get more hours of rain. But uh, So you're saying October is a good time. October is a good time. Uh, so is April. How, how big of a concern is crowds? If you're gonna, Because for me, uh, yeah, Anthony, when you're considering the best time, you want to you measure weather and crowds. And sometimes yeah. you'll yes. compromise on the weather to avoid some crowds. Are crowds really a problem for traveling in Turkey? At some places of Turkey, in popular museums, yes, it can be a problem. So therefore, um, doing the trip towards the second half of October will help you avoid the crowds, or or April, you'll avoid the crowds. So it's a bell-shaped curve. It gets hotter and more crowded in the middle of the of Kind the of, yes. Yeah. Remember, Turkey is, as Lolly said, it's the size of Texas. What has it got, 60 million people? 80? 70 million 70 people. 70 million people. Mm-hmm. And it's a high kind of plateau, and the, there's a, a very high part of Turkey that's quite cold in the off-season. Imagine Turkey like a ramp. The lower end of the ramp is towards the western side of Turkey where there's the Aegean. Mm -hmm. And the ramp starts inclining as you go from west to east. Central part of Turkey is a higher plateau, which elevation is like 1,000 meters. That would correspond to like... 3,300 feet? More or less. And if you continue further east, it gets even higher. My favorite ski slopes are 3,300 feet. So that's high in the center. And then it culminates uh, at the border of Georgia and Iran at Mount Ararat. Yes, it's uh, 5,135 meters. That would like 16,000 feet or more. Taller than anything in the United States. So you've got some uh, altitude there. Anthony, you're considering traveling in eastern Turkey? We'd like to spend about three weeks there and see as much as we could. Do you think the East is safe for Americans? I yes, mean, it is. In the old days, that was a, a more rough-and-tumble area. I find it very um, rewarding, but also much more challenging than the West. Uh, it's quite quite uh, dramatic in the East. It is very dramatic. The difference is uh, I can consider Western Turkey as part of the global world, but mm-hmm. not Eastern Turkey. So uh, if we can say that Western Turkey is a melting pot, Eastern Turkey is a salad bowl. While colors are more vivid, people hold to their ethnic traditions more, less people speak English, and the eastern part of Turkey is less structured to welcome international tourists. It doesn't mean welcome in means of a personal basis, on a technical basis. Just the infrastructure. Inf- exactly. Hotels, tourist information. There are information. hotels, but they're for the businessmen yeah. that would go and travel there. And is it safe? Yes, there are neighbors of eastern Turkey. I mean, just you're closer to Syria, closer to Iraq. But any breach into Turkey, even east or west, would be breached into into a NATO country. When you mention the east is less uh, designed for international tourism, I found the most fascinating travels, Anthony, in the east. I went to a bank to change money, and they had never seen an American. So the, the, the president of the bank invited me into his office, and we had tea, because he was just so proud that an American had come into his bank to change money. At the hotel, I wrote a postcard, and I gave it to the guy at the desk, and he looked at it, and he said, Guzel. That, I think that means good. And good. Then he, he gave it back to me. He didn't know what to do with the postcard. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, went to a, we went to a town with a, one of our groups, and we had no hotels, so we stayed in people's homes. And I remember we taught them how to play football with uh, 
football-shaped honeydew melons. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it just was a wonderful experience to go to places that had never met an American tourist. And that can be done, and we were received so warmly. And it was the richest travel experience, but it is more demanding and more challenging, and there's a few more pitfalls. So that's a beautiful thing about Turkey. You can get the very tame resorts of the West with the great ancient sites and so on. You can go to Istanbul and do all your shopping and go to the Grand Bazaar, or you can ride a bus for 20 hours directly east and find yourself in a fantasy land. Uh, you don't really need to take a 20-hour bus ride anymore. There are more airports in eastern Turkey. You can fly into many cities, which especially would be centrally located to visit the highlights. Great. Thanks, Anthony, for your call. Thank you. Good luck on your trip. We have Paul on the phone from Chicago. Paul. Hello, Rick. Merhaba, Lolly. Oh, merhaba. <laughs> I've enjoyed many of your programs, Rick, especially on the Best of series. You cover the West Coast, Istanbul, and Central Turkey, and I have thoroughly enjoyed them. I have been to Turkey, but not for several years, and I want to go back and want to take a blue cruise. And my interests particularly are the seafood and also uh, snorkeling. And if there's any recommendation on how to choose the best blue cruise to suit my desires. What's a blue cruise? A uh, blue cruise is a popular route for yachting on the coast of southwestern Turkey. Southwest, where you can find these archaeological sites that have no road access? Exactly. Drop the anchor and swim to the ancient site? Exactly. Wow. And it's called the Blue Cruise. Actually, it should have been called the Turquoise Cruise because that's the color of the Mediterranean Sea there. Is it called the Turquoise Coast? We call it the Turquoise Coast, yes. And turquoise is, tell the history of that word. It's the... It's, it's the color of the... Yeah, but it means Turkish in min- French, doesn't it? Mineral. Well, I don't know French. I'm, say, I'm told that it is so. Yeah, but that's what I learned. When, when, the, when the French came to Istanbul, they saw so much stuff in this color, they named it Turkish, turquoise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we know that today. Well, so Paul's considering taking a blue cruise along the turquoise coast, and he wants to snorkel, he wants to enjoy the seafood, and he wants to check out the archaeology. Um, how would he, what, what are the options there, Lolly? and what, do you, what, would, what advice would you give him? Uh, first of all, uh, at certain times of the year, it may really get very hot in that particular part of Turkey. So I would recommend maybe a late June trip or an early September trip, early or mid-September trip. That would be ideal to do so. Seafood is spectacular, and when you travel on the boat, you usually get to eat the catch of the day. Oh, so they leave the boat with their group, and they don't even have enough food yet because they assume they'll be catching dinner. The staff is not catching. They're buying it on the way from the fishermen that okay. they come across as they travel. So you're going to get very fresh seafood, very healthy food, salads, fruits, and seafood. Just They're hours out of the sea. Just hours out of the sea. And What um, kind of seafood would it be? In southwestern Turkey, calamari, octopus, you're going to have um, sea bass, gray mullet, red mullet, which is a very delicious fish. Paul, does that sound okay to you? Oh, I love, I love the calamari. I've had that before. And lots of salads. Olive oil, salads, just very delicious food. You know, on my early days of touring in Turkey, we would stop our group in Antalya, I think, or Antakya, one of those towns, and we would leave the group for lunch, and our guide and I would run, literally run, through the yacht harbor, and we would make a deal with guys that had big, beautiful wooden boats. And we would just make the deal right there, and our groups would come by in an hour, and they would go grab some food and drinks, and we'd go cruising. And we'd just do it on the spot. It was dirt cheap. And we would get to these coves where we'd drop the hook. And they would uh, ferry us ashore. And we'd walk and explore these wonderful biblical sites and ancient Greek and Roman sites. Tell us about these ancient sites that are so cut off from the rest of the world unless you have a boat. Uh, it's because there are heavy forests. And in order to excavate them, you have to cut down the forest, which you don't want to do. Because there are already so many number of archaeological ruins excavated in Turkey. And uh, because they are in heavy forested areas, they don't want to ruin the nature and build by building a road through it. So the only way to see them is to approach them on the sea. And, and that um, pr- protects them from being overrun by tour groups. Exactly. So wonderful, exactly. magical experience. Exactly. But you can be sure that there is not going to be hordes of other people there. You'll just be in the nature in a city where people lived 2,000 years ago or even maybe older, and you'll be you'll be able to enjoy it just by yourself. Paul, does that uh, help you out? Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you very much. Let us know how your trip goes. I will do. Okay, merhaba and happy travels. Thank you very much. How do you say happy travels in Turkish? Mutlu seyahatler. Mutlu is happy. Mutlu. Travels is seyahatler. Seyahatlash. Yes. Mutlu seyahatlash. Well, let's let's say mutlu seyahatlash to Walter, who's calling us from Hawaii. Walter, aloha. Hi there, how are you? Good. 
Hey, you've got a question, it sounds like, about related to cruising uh, in the Turkish coastal area also. Very much. The way it was expressed to me, uh, we're taking a cruise, a uh, big ship cruise, from Athens to Istanbul in August, and we'll stay in Istanbul for f- a few days. But I want to make my way south back into Greece and the Peloponnese, and a friend suggested that we can charter or uh, board a, a boat that he called a gullet that could sail from uh, Turkey and down the coast uh, and make our way toward Greece in that fashion. Do you know anything about such a craft, or is that the same as the Blue Cruises? It's advertised under the same name, and there are companies with gullets. First of all, gullet is a wooden boat typical to the coastline of Asia Minor, which is today's Turkey. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have got like four to eight cabins. They're smaller boats, very, very casual totally different from what the atmosphere can be in a cruise ship, very casual. Mm -hmm. And um, some companies that do this kind of programs also offer a 15-day blue cruise, which includes the Turkish coastline and the Greek islands. But it shouldn't be considered as a transportation between the Turkish coast to the Greek coast. It's not a transportation from one coast to the other. But if it's what you want to do from the Turkish coastline, there are ferries and hydrofoils that you can take to transport yourself to one of the Greek islands. Mm-hmm. What about going over land from Istanbul south to uh, Greece? On a train or a bus? Uh, you yeah. can do that on an overnight train from Istanbul to Thessaloniki you can get to. And from mm-hmm. Thessaloniki you can get onto a local bus to Athens. Or you can take a bus. There are every night buses between Thessaloniki and Istanbul. What about flying? Is there cheap flights now from Athens? to? I remember in the old days, the Greeks made it very expensive to go to Turkey because they didn't want to send their tourism over to Turkey. Well, I don't want to mislead you, but the flights between Istanbul and Athens cost around $300 based on the time of the year. In the high season, this price goes higher up. Mm-hmm. In the off-season, shoulder season, it drops down a so little it's bit. it's not prohibitive. It's, it's more expensive than it might be, but it's not really unusual. It's not horribly expensive to connect. And no. considering the value of your vacation time, you might want to just consider flying from Istanbul That's what I recommend. If yeah. you want to travel from one city, from Istanbul to Athens, if you're not a heavy-duty traveler, take the flight. Right. And, Walter, I am so into island hopping from Athens across the Greek Sea and then enjoying the quick little hop from Rhodes over to Bodrum yes, or from Samos over to Kusadashi. Both very interesting Greek islands and both great places to kick off your Turkish adventure. Great. Well, I appreciate the suggestion. I have one more question. What about car travel, independent car travel from Istanbul, uh, say, to Thessalonica? To Thessalonica, you mean renting a car and driving it renting yourself? Renting a car in Istanbul and then dropping it. In, is it possible to drop it in Greece? If uh, It's not something that I would highly recommend. No, it's it's too right. confusing. And you have to be covering the customs expenses of the car you're taking from one country mm. to the other, and it increases the insurance cost as well. And the international drop charge would be horrible, horrible. between Turkey and Greece. Horrible. So nobody who cares about their money would rent a car to drive from Istanbul to Thessalonica. And there's not, frankly, there's not a lot of great things to see between Istanbul and Thessalonica. I'd go down the west coast and do the Greek islands. Right. Well, based on what you folks have been talking about, maybe we won't leave uh, Istanbul. Turkey sounds fascinating in its own right. Maybe we could spend our whole two weeks in Turkey. You won't regret if you do so. Oh, Lolly, you're so gentle. Walter, <laughs> thank you for your call, and uh, have a great trip in Turkey. Thank you very much. Hi, Aloha Walter. to both of you. And we got Jane on the phone in Discovery Bay, California. Hi, Jane. Hi. We're taking a, <clears throat> excuse me, a cruise from Athens on the motor sailor um, the Windstar, and we'll be stopping in some places like Mykonos and Santorini and Rhodes. But then we do uh, stop in Bodrum, Turkey, and in Kusadasi, and then we end up in Istanbul, and we'll have, we've, we're going to stay an extra four days in Istanbul on our own. And I've just been reading the newspapers about avian flu, and figure we probably don't really have to worry, but uh, if, if you have any ideas on the subject. Uh, you've spent a lot of money to buy this cruise. It would be expensive for you to cancel out, I would imagine. Yes, it would be. And uh, you're a little nervous. What do you think, Lolly? Uh, I can, at the moment, tell you what the official of World Health Organization in charge of Europe is telling about it. They've made a research in Turkey, and the information that they give is that Turkey is perfectly safe to travel, and Turkey has taken measures of control on the issue 
even more stricter than the World Health Organization would wanted them to do. Right. Well, that sounds great. You know, Jane, remember, you're going to be on a boat going to tourist attractions, and then you're going to be in a big city. Unless you wake up one morning and you find chickens running all over the deck as you're going down to breakfast, I wouldn't worry on the boat. You're going to read in the newspaper. I mean, it's it's huge news. I mean, it's exciting news from a newspaper point of view. These people that get the bird flu are people who live in villages where the economy is based on ducks and chickens. And they're running around. They're literally, they got chickens in their beds, you know. They wake up. Right. they got chickens everywhere. They've got feathers everywhere. They're getting bit by chickens. It's... It's a different thing. You're, if, as an American tourist going to Istanbul and Ephesus and cruise ports, uh, it's a whole different world. Turkey is the size of Texas. You're talking, I don't know how many hundreds of miles away. About 2,000 from west to east. Yeah, so you know, I, I would hope that you wouldn't let that get in the way of what I think promises to be the travel experience of a lifetime, to be able to travel well, that, from Athens to Istanbul. I figured that we better do it now before we get any older, and I would love to be out in the countryside, but this is not going to be a trip out in the countryside. No, you're going to, in fact, you should try to get out in the countryside as much as you can if, uh, if my hunch of what a cruise is like uh, is true. When you arrive in these ports, do what you can to leave the mobs because they're going to hustle you right into the carpet shops when you go to these ports where the cruises stop. They're going to greet you with little stickers that say Merhaba and they're color-coded stickers. If it's a blue one, the tour guide with the blue group gets the money uh, kickback on what you buy, you know. If it's a green one, the tour guide from that cruise boat gets that money. Their law is not to give you any free time so you know what the real prices are so that you will just buy uh, the the leather coats uh, at the first ones you see and pay too much money and your guides are going to pocket 20 or 25 percent so don't get sucked into all the cruise corruptions uh, try to break away from your group and wander the back streets and, and uh, get a haircut uh, you know go to a tea house play backgammon go to a turkish bath uh, have a real cultural experience and you can do that even in the cruise ports if you just get yourself six or eight blocks away from the commotion with all the hustlers and con artists that wait for the cruise tenders to dock Okay, we'll do that in Bodrum and Kusadasi then. Have a great time and stay away from the birds, okay? Okay. Have a good time, Jane. Bye. Okay, bye. I've been talking with Lolly Sermon Aran, a friend of mine and fellow tour guide based in Istanbul. Lolly, thank you so much for giving us an insight into your wonderful country. It's so exciting to be here, so exciting to be able to share things. If you're looking for something even more exotic than Turkey, there's a section of the Persian Gulf region just across the water from Iran that's attracting business travelers and tourists from around the world. Guidebook writer David Stanley recently returned from a trip to Bahrain, Dubai, Qatar, and Oman, and he's joining us to share his impressions. While they've still got their share of issues to resolve, including low-paid imported labor and the role of women in their male-dominated societies, these tiny states perched on the edge of the Arabian Peninsula feature rapidly changing cities and striking scenery. We're catching a caravan through the United Arab Emirates next as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today I want to travel to the United Arab Emirates, the Persian Gulf, in an area that a lot of people don't consider for just purely touristic purposes. But I've got a friend who's a professional travel writer. He's spent 25 or 30 years writing guidebooks. His classic South Pacific handbook is his most famous guidebook. And, and David Stanley just returned from, I think, just a, a, a fun trip to the Persian Gulf. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. I'm always happy to talk to you. Yeah, now, you just went to Bahrain and Qatar and Dubai and Oman for fun? Yes, um, I, I have, I'm sort of a collector of countries, and it's my goal, hopefully, before I die, to visit every country in the world. Now, I've, I've, I'm at 188 countries now, and uh, I think I've got about 75 or so to go. So I, I generally try to pick off about 12 a year. Wow. So you, you're, uh, you're on target to break Babe Ruth's record there, I think. <laughs> well, that, I, actually, it's very amusing. Well, on my trip, I actually met a guy in Oman who had been to, I think, a hun- 213 
and he was doing the same thing. He's another Canadian from Montreal. Well, so we can we can can we just assume anybody any tourist in Oman is just trying to see every every country. Oh no no no! <laughs> Oman is becoming a very popular destination, especially for Europeans. Okay, well, you hit uh, what four countries then that you hadn't been to? Yes, four four countries all in a row, and they're all very very close together, aren't they? They are. They're close together. Um, my main hub was Dubai. And uh, Dubai is, is definitely the most popular of the four because uh, they are really pushing to develop tourism there. For example, they allow visa-free entry to Americans, Canadians, Europeans, etc. So you can just land there, you know, go right. into the line, get your passport stamped, and out the door, you know. Well, give me a thumbnail description here, uh, David, about the four countries that you visited here. Because I, I had a hard time finding on the map, to, to be honest. Yes, the first country I actually stayed in was Bahrain. And Bahrain is, is a small island. It's the, definitely the, by far the smallest of the four. And uh, interestingly, Michael Jackson recently moved to Bahrain. That's right. I, I heard about that. Now, these four countries, just so put people in perspective, are on the uh, eastern side of Saudi Arabia across the Persian Gulf from Iran. Yes. Now, yes. what on earth is Michael Jackson doing in Bahrain? Why did I he think go there? he's a buddy of the crown, one of the crown princes. Okay. And, uh, you know, he, he has a good life there. And uh, actually, he was there at the time. I didn't see him when I was there, mind you. But I did ask a few people about him. And they all knew, knew you know, what was going on. And uh, he has his private residence next to the house of the, the prince. And I think they, uh, they enjoy themselves. <laughs> okay, so you went to Dubai, and that's the big sort of gateway to the region, and that's basically just a city that's a nation. Is that right? Well, Dubai is actually the United Arab Emirates is made up of seven different emirates, um, and Dubai is one of the seven. But oh, Dubai see. is by far the most famous and most visited. Dubai is sort of like a little Singapore, if you can imagine. Yeah. It has a creek running right through the center of the city, mm-hmm. and, and there's, there are small ferries that cross uh, the creek constantly. So there's a huge amount of traffic, because this is a city of over a million people, right? I didn't know that. One oh, million. Wow. It's a vast city and, and has you know, many high-rise hotels. It has kind of a Shanghai skyline, doesn't it? I mean, super futuristic skyscrapers. Exactly. Actually, the, if you're looking for that, the one, you, the one that has the most spectacular skyline or will is, is Doha, Qatar. Because huh. in December, they're going to host the Asian Games. Okay. So they are building skyscrapers you wouldn't believe. I've never seen so many designer, upscale buildings going up at the same time in one place before in my life. There's at least 50 high-rise buildings going up all at the same time. And that's Qatar. And then you've got Bahrain, which is a, a well-developed little island that's yes. quite wealthy and uh, connected by a long bridge to the mainland. Yes, it is. It's connected to Saudi Arabia by this bridge. And, uh, of course, Saudi Arabia doesn't really allow any tourists to enter at all. So, but these places are quite modern and welcoming tourists. Oh, they're all open to tourists. In fact, you can, you, in, in Dubai, you don't need a visa. In the other three, you can obtain your visa in the airport. Okay, so we got Dubai, we got Bahrain, we got Qatar, and Qatar's um, capital city, Doha, you said, is where all the skyscrapers are going up. Yes. And uh, Qatar is a little peninsula that sticks off of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And, and then the fourth country you visited was Oman. Oman. Oman is by far the largest of the, of the four and uh, the, the capital city is Muscat. Um, it's a very picturesque spot. Um, the mountains just come right down into the ocean, and these mountains are, are barren, you know, because it's a desert. There's, no, there's not a single tree growing on the mountains, so they, they just dip right down into the ocean, and the, and the city itself is in little valleys between the different uh, arms of the mountains coming down. It's an extremely picturesque place. Wow. Now, are in all of these places welcome tourists, and they would have tourist information offices and plenty of information and tourist-friendly hotels? Yes, they all have hotels. They all welcome tourists. Now, as for tourist information, I would strongly suggest you buy your guidebook before you get there. And what guidebook did you use? Well, I used Lonely Planet, of course. <laughs> Good. Well, Lonely Planet covers us when we go to a place that uh, nobody else writes guidebooks for, that's for sure. That's right. Actually, I'm, they're competing with my books in the South Pacific, and I think my books are a lot better in the South Pacific. But when I go to a place like this, I, I sort of fall back on Lonely Planet because I know they, they quote prices. 
like the rough guide is is also pretty good, but they don't quote exact prices. Yes. I rely on Lonely Planet, and Lonely Planet has an ethic of covering every place on the planet regardless of the market. Right. When I, when I went to uh, Papua New Guinea, I was so thankful that Lonely Planet had that ethic because there wasn't enough tourism there to justify a good guidebook, but there was a good guidebook, and it was the Lonely Planet. Okay. You have to look at the date on these books, huh, because they go out of sure. date pretty fast. Oh, yeah. And uh, it covered everything right up to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Yemen, but I only used it in the four countries that I visited. Hey, we've got, um, I think we've got Ross on the line in Calgary. Have you traveled in this part of the world? Uh, yes, I had the uh, opportunity to travel uh, to the country of Iran last year in, in the fall. Wow. For three and a half weeks. It was uh, nominally for a business trip, but uh, a little more on the, the visitor's side as opposed to uh, their doing business. I mean, you, your excuse was you're on business. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Because if you're just a tourist, will they let you in? Oh, yes. Actually, is a, it's not advertised, but there still is a tourist uh, market in Iran and that, I, that I saw, and it was mostly Italians, Germans, uh, Europeans, okay. and I think some French. In a restaurant one evening in, uh, in Tehran, there was uh, a British couple with, obviously, their Iranian friends. We're enjoying a meal. In this culture, I would think that it's almost an, um, discouraged for people to learn English uh, because that's Western. I would imagine there's quite a language barrier. On the contrary, Rick, the public schools teach English as the second language. Is that right? That is correct. I did not know that until I went there. Wow. So everyone, everybody, including, you know, if I want to, I don't want to say peasant, but the people in the right. smaller towns. Anybody well-educated speak would speak English. some English. Now, you are Canadian. Uh, that is correct. W- were you ever mistaken as an American? No, the question never came up. Really? Did you, like, cover yourself in Canadian flags? Nope. So you would think not that, at all. you know, it's so interesting how you can get a misconception by just drawing uh, conclusions from watching the news and so on. Yeah, well, when we, we uh, were getting prepared to go there, I think we were sort of going, you know, some of our colleagues had gone a number of years earlier and had told us about it. Okay. And uh, we did have a gentleman with us in the, in the group of four of us that were traveling there who was born in uh, Iran, had been in uh, Canada for, you know, over 25 or 30 years working. Did you feel there was a hunger with the local people to meet somebody from the outside and you were like their window on the west? Yeah, uh, definitely. That was definitely the case. Did you have a phrase book with you? Was that handy? Uh, using what you had uh, you push in your own travel books and on your television show, I, I took the phrase book. That was the key, Rick. That was the absolute key. My attempt to speak some of their language totally opened the door. I bet it blew them away to meet a Canadian speaking Farsi. Uh, that's correct. And or trying to speak Farsi. Yeah, and, and the phrase book became almost like, when I brought out the phrase book to get something, everybody crowded around, and they would actually start using it themselves, trying to, you know, trying to improve their, their English, or even those that couldn't speak very well would go through the book and find what they wanted. So, Ross, you were actually communicating with your phrase book, but you've got a situation where they don't have the ABCs like we're used to. They've got the Farsi script mostly, right? That's right. People were explaining the history to me, and... The Persian language, the original Farsi, has uh, sort of been changed. It's like it's like any language anywhere on earth. You get influences from the outside, and so there's some of the Arabic script has come in, and so some uh, of the words there's actually two words. But I mean, one is Arabic and one is Farsi. Now that is a particular case when you want to have a phrase book because you can just point to something you can't even begin to dis- uh, pronounce, and they'll know what what you're talking about. Uh, that's right. That's exactly what I did. And that must have been a godsend. Oh, it was. It said it opened the door, to, and as the gentleman that was sort of our guide there, he actually came to me after one week and said, he says, no, he says, you've done exactly the right thing. He says, these people talking, you may not know what they're saying, but they, you know, they basically have taken to you, and you're, you're uh, you know, very high on their, their list of uh, visitors. I found when I'm in that part of the world that people actually take care of me. They care about my safety. They kind of shepherd me through any problems. Oh, that, that, that is exactly right, Rick. That's exactly what I found. Where all did you go in Iran? We actually were in the uh, east northeastern part of Iran, and actually, you know, for a little concern, because we were only about 40, you know, I'll say kilometers, which is only about uh, 20 miles from the Afghan border. We were in Mashhad. That's a big uh, religious center, isn't it? It is. It's one of the shrines that uh, Muslim people have on their list to visit before they they leave this earth. You know, I was in Mashhad, and there was a... Uh, festival going on, and I couldn't get a, uh, a ride out of town for days. I was trying to go to Afghanistan, and uh, I realized, man, if you hit something during a festival when there's a pilgrimage, uh, the tourist is kind of swept away by the tide of pilgrims. Oh, it is, and uh, 
and we were there uh, right at the end of uh, Ramadan, or uh, Ramazan, as they say in uh, Persian. Right. And it was fairly crowded. The airports were crowded. Right, we were there at like three or three thirty in the morning to get our flight to Mashhad from Tehran. The huh. airport was packed, absolutely packed. David Stanley, you've been to 188 countries. Uh, have you been to Iran? No, unfortunately, I wasn't. I, I was actually in Afghanistan. I was almost, that was back about 1981 or something. I was, wanted to go to Iran, and I just decided not to, and I'm still regretting that decision, turning back and going back to Pakistan. Hmm. I was hung up on the Iran-Afghanistan border for hours while they waited for the nurse to come in who gave people their shots if they didn't have their little yellow card. Yes, I can imagine oh, that. Man. I can see that happening. I had my shot, but my friend didn't have his shot, and I can still remember the needle bending as they tried to get that dull thing into his arm. Oh, my God. And then you had to kill time at the border looking at a little museum display that showed all the people that tried to sneak uh, marijuana over the border where they were doing time in jail and if they needed blankets or medicine, what you could send them. But it was a very powerful way to scare anybody from anything um, that wasn't legal as they traveled from uh, Turkey to uh, Kashmir in the old hippie highway. Right, right. Those were the days. Those were the days. Hey, Ross, thank you for your call. And uh, if you really think it's uh, comfortable for uh, an adventurer who wants to go to Iran these days. Um, well, things have actually slid a bit. But that was 2005 when you were there. so That's, that's right. All right. Well, thank you for your uh, insight there. Okay, well, thank you very much. You're welcome, Rick. So I'm talking with uh, David Stanley, and we're talking about traveling in the Persian Gulf area. And there's four great little countries that actually welcome tourists. They've got sort of skyscraper modern cities. Uh, David, there must be an incredible wealth in these um, crazy little countries where you've got people that have gone from camels to skyscrapers in two generations. Well, what's your take on that? Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's amazing, really. Uh, they've really absorbed it well. and um, But actually, it... It's not that expensive. You would, I thought this, this area was going to be deadly expensive, but it wasn't. Um, and the reason is very simple why it isn't, because over half the population are Indians and Pakistanis who are brought into work in, in the Gulf countries. And those people work for, you know, less than $200 a month. It just keeps the cost of living extremely low, which is really, it's really a, a bizarre situation. Wow, so you see these elite locals who are probably outnumbered by their guest yes. workers, yes. and they walk around in their fancy robes, and you've got the Indians in there doing all the hard labor. Mm -hmm. uh, and do the Indians, I think they would generally speak English, wouldn't they? Oh, yes, they all speak English. And, and, and I found everyone was very friendly and helpful. I, I didn't meet a surly or unhelpful or troublesome person in, in any of those countries at all, not one. So there's a, like a gentility there. That's right, that's right. Sometimes I was wondering what they were really thinking, you know. You, ha you wonder that, but, but on the surface they were extremely polite and helpful and friendly. Now, what are good ways to connect with people? I traveled the whole time on public transportation. I was not on any tour, and you get to meet the people that way. You get to see, you know, the way they really live. And uh, I had a lot of good conversations with people sitting next to me on buses, you know, or even in shared taxis or riding around. It was very interesting to do that. Talk about shared taxis. Yes. When I was in Iran, you just pointed to the asphalt, and somebody would stop, and you'd hop in. <laughs> do they have that sort of thing, or they got the, the? Actually, they do, but you have to be a little bit careful, Rick, because you know you want to know how much you're going to be charged because there's a tourist price, huh? Right. And and it's usually about ten times the local price. So you can hop in a taxi that's got somebody in it, but you want to negotiate the price first. Well, yeah, it's best if you know the price beforehand. Yeah. And what I would do, I would just ask other people what the price should be and then just pay it you know and right. don't question it and, and but if there was any doubt i i would say and if sometimes there was a little bit of back and forth at the beginning but it always came right. out all right well you can't blame them for trying to charge a westerner a little more i guess yes well. uh what about if you want some sort of midnight at the oasis experience any way to get out in the desert yes a lot of visitors rent uh four-wheel drive vehicles um to go out in the desert actually that's a very um, popular activity in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, yeah. Um, but if you want to do it on the cheap, you can you can go out on a public bus. Are there villages that you can just find a little bed and breakfast in, or something like this? Not really. No. The there are hotels, but they're the prices of the hotels vary uh, dramatically. Right. 
I, I sort of based myself in Dubai for the whole week I was in the Emirates and made side trips from Dubai, which worked perfect because Dubai has an excellent public transport system. And, you know, within an hour or two hours, you can be in one of the other Emirates, have a look around, have the day there, and then go back to your hotel. And you don't have to carry your luggage yeah, all that, around with you and everything. That makes sense. There's probably pretty decent roads. Oh, the roads are, are excellent, you know, like you have eight-lane highway going down to Abu Dhabi, which is the capital of the United Arab Emirates, and you can get there on a public bus for, you know, for about 2 or $3, and wow. it takes about an hour and a half. Is there enough traffic to merit an eight-lane highway? Uh, not at the moment. <laughs> I think they're looking ahead, but, <laughs> okay. but uh, it's there. <laughs> now, did you talk politics at all with the war going on and all this? Uh, you were a Canadian, but they might have thought you were an American. Were people interested in talking politics? Not really. Um, I wouldn't really talk, d initiate the conversation, but I did have a few discussions with people, especially in Oman, and uh, they were very frank about the situation. Now, all four of these countries are run by... Um, princes or sheiks, they call them, or emirs. And they're generally allies of the United States. They are they? very strong allies of the United States, and, and they're, there's no... So they're, they know they're, where their bread's buttered. They do, and, and, and I don't think it's even a matter of force. I think the people themselves in, in, don't have any hostility um, to Westerners. No. I didn't feel any hostility, and, and you know, you can feel it when, you, when it's there, but I didn't feel it there. And you could connect these four different countries quite easily. They must have, like, commuter airplanes that just zip back and forth between the capitals. Yeah, they do. Well, actually, I flew on Emirates Airlines, and they have a special uh, uh, Arabia Pass. And if you have a ticket to Dubai, you can add almost any place in the Middle East on for a very reasonable uh, sum. And you went off-season. Uh, I imagine you'd want to steer clear of July and August. Oh, yes, yes. No, the, the time to go is in our winter, you know, December to March when oh, it's okay. cool over there. Yes, I was warned about the uh, uh, hot season. But it's actually comfortable in the winter? Oh, yes, very comfortable. Uh, it didn't rain a, a drop the whole and time I was there, the whole month. David Stanley, thanks so much, and uh, you got me thinking about the Persian Gulf. Okay, well, good. Thank you, Rick. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Uh, David Stanley, the author of the South Pacific Handbook, just got back from An Adventure in the Persian Gulf. If, you know, if you're going around the world, just stop in Dubai. Uh, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. It's just like a little Singapore. It's really amazing. A little Singapore. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.